Furthermore, the equation E is equal to MC square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome, Valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist. We also stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to excel in industry. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist or our program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, you can go to phdsgethired.com. Just enter your name and email address and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry. What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry, you can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. So welcome, officially, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. We have a great show lined up. We're talking about how atomic habits help PhDs get hired. We have on best-selling author James Clear, who's going to talk about his new book, Atomic Habits. I have the book here. It's a great book. Check it out. You can go to his website. I'll show you all of this. I'll show you his website. I'll show you his book later. We have a great show lined up again. We're talking about how habits, in particular atomic habits, can help PhDs achieve their goals, career, job search, and otherwise. We're going to jump over to the first section that we do every radio show because we are PhDs. We do a show me the data section with Jeanette. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? Hello. I'm Great. good. Ready Great to go. So the question, you know, we were putting together the show me the data section and we were, you know, we were prepping for the show with, with James that we're really excited about. And the question kept coming up is why are habits important? And we'll talk with, with James about this too, but really what's the why behind it? Why do we care? Yes, good habits, bad habits. We've heard about this ever since Aristotle, right? He used to talk a lot about habits. Um, but why, why do we care as, as scientists? And I think this experiment um, really kind of showcases uh, what, how habits can help you increase your performance without using up more mental energy. So, Jeanette, I'll let you walk us through this experiment. This is from The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, a book that came out. Uh, several years ago. Again, it's the power of habit, but it illustrates an important point that'll set us up for the rest of today. Yeah. So the basic premise of the experiment is that there was a mouse that had to travel through a maze to find some chocolate. Yes. And that's sort of the diagram you're seeing on the top. Um, and they used a click to begin this maze. That was the cue that the maze was, the mouse was supposed to start trying to find the chocolate as they would open the gate. And on the left-hand side, the graph is showing um, those lines represent brain activity. So 
you're seeing that this graph on the left is the very first time that this mouse ran through the maze. Yes. Whereas you can see the brain activity going nuts, right? It's all very, very active, trying to figure it out. The mouse was like said to be scratching the walls, right? We know mice are not the most intelligent of creatures. And so they struggled to find the chocolate even in the simple maze. <laughs> yeah, so, and so the activity was high the entire time, yeah, right? The entire I mean, you, see, time. you see some peaks and valleys, but it's, it's very, very high. So as opposed to the, the right side, what's different there? Yeah, so the right side, you can see that the level of activity in the brain drops dramatically in the middle section there. And it drops after they hear that click, after the maze is opened. And this graph is from a week later. So they've been wow. putting this mouse through the same maze for a whole week. And so after that week, you can see that while the mouse is running through the maze, their brain is not working as hard, mm. right? Which is fascinating, right? Why, why is that fascinating? Because you, so you, they actually get through the maze faster, so their performance increases, but you're telling me that their brain activity goes down. Yes, and their brain activity goes down because running this maze and finding the chocolate has become a habit. Right? Exactly. They've done it over and over and over again. So now they can do it like automatically. Their brain doesn't need to worry so much about how to find the chocolate because right. it's become a habit. Right. And so, you know, I know we probably have a lot of neuroscientists on here and you're on the cutting edge of stuff. But in general, when something is new and fresh, right, your temporal lobe is much more active. And that's why the, the mice were like clawing and scratching the walls or figuring stuff out. It's all new. But over time, they get used to it. It becomes normal and it moves to a part of your brain called the basal ganglia, which requires very little mental energy over, overall in terms of performance or having you uh, perform a certain task or activity, right? The middle of that habit. And I think what Jeanette said is very important. We'll talk about this later with James and with others. The beginning, that click, right? Just a, the sound, the click, that's the cue. So a habit has three parts. It has a cue, a routine, which is the middle part. That's the part that requires less brain activity um, once it becomes a habit. And then you have the reward at the end. And so for those of you that are listening by audio, again, a mouse is put into a maze, very simple maze. If the mouse goes left, it gets the chocolate. If it goes right, it gets nothing, right? So it takes them a while to go through the maze. The first time their brain activity is peaking the entire time they're going through the maze until they find the chocolate but after even a week there's this valley in between right so there's the cue at the beginning the reward at the end but there's this valley in between where their mental energy has gone down um, so I think this is the why why do you want to learn about habits why do you want to add more habits to your day because you are a finite resource you and by you I mean your mental energy is a finite resource throughout the day we talk about your mental energy being your most valuable asset all the time how can you conserve mental energy how can you perform better and better right a lot of you probably think I am maxed out I have no time for my job search I have no time for my career like I'm so busy so in conclusion here Jeanette in your own words why are habits important in terms of performance in terms of any goal that you want to achieve as a PhD yeah they make whatever you want to do take less energy so that means you can end up doing more things with less resources. And that's, all, that's always all about, right? The more, it's basically being more productive is what it is. Exactly, well yeah. said. And so we're gonna back this up a little bit more. So some of you are probably thinking, okay, well, what exactly is a habit? Okay, so now you know the why. Why are habits important? They help you scale your performance without taking away more mental energy. Um, this next report, the title of it is Reflections on Past Behavior, a Self-Report Index of habit strength. And so there's a couple terms here that in the field of habits are used quite frequently like automaticity, right? And there's a, a bunch of definitions 
of behaviors. And I guess what they're trying to figure out here, Jeanette, is that, you know, what is the definition of a habit? Like what things do people say that help them identify a habit versus a non-habit? Maybe you can yeah. walk this. Yeah, exactly. So they have these set of questions that the majority of these studies use these questions or questions that are very similar to these to decide if a person has a habit. And I think this is important because we're not mice, mm. right? So you can trick a mouse into getting a habit, but you can't really, it's like difficult to do that with a human because we can think about our thoughts. And so yeah. that's what this allows you to do. It like, you can ask yourself, is this something that I do frequently? Can, do I do this automatically? And that's what these questions are for so that you can have that self-reflection and figure mm. out if something is or isn't a habit for you. Yeah. And I really like this. I mean, this, I mean, this is, these are, this is something from ResearchGate, right? This is a, a actual uh, data from a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, yep. we're, we're talking about the realm of behavioral psychology here. And it's just important to know, like Jeanette so eloquently said, you're not a mouse, you're a human, right? So you have to reflect on these things. You, we're not you're not trying to trick yourself. You're actually trying to identify the things that you can turn into a habit so that you can increase your performance while not using up as much mental energy. And so some of the questions here, I'll just read them off again for those of you listening by audio who can't see this. Behavior X is something dot, 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 right? So number one is I do frequently, I do automatically, I do without having to consciously remember. Uh, it makes me feel weird if I do not do it. Weird is a good thing. When somebody something becomes a habit for me, if I don't do it, I feel uncomfortable, right? I think that's what they mean by weird. Um, I do without thinking would require effort not to do it. Like it actually is more painful to not do it once it's a habit than it is to do it. And I think a lot of you have experienced this. Like maybe you tried to wake up a little bit earlier in the morning at some point in your life, right? Maybe in undergrad, you were waking up like at noon was a good day. And then you had to start slowly creeping that back as you got into grad school and now you want to get hired. Maybe you got to get up at seven, eight. Very painful at first. But then after a while, you started just waking up automatically five minutes before your alarm went off, et cetera. So that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. And if you're still kind of confused on the routine part of a habit, one thing that really helps me understand a habit, especially in terms of conserving mental energy, is if you've ever driven the same route to work or to the lab or to home every day, and then it becomes so habitualized that you, you get home sometimes, you barely remember the drive. Like your mind was totally somewhere else, yet you navigated in a car, right? Like a, a moving vehicle that could cause a lot of damage. You somehow navigated all the way home. And it's because your brain's actually processing stuff it's actually you know if something out of the ordinary happened you'd be tuned in but you don't remember it because you've done it so many different times and because it was in that different part of your brain i do want to move forward here to this next uh this ne next graphic because i think i think it really helps break things down into what are the different parts of a habit and how to best create a habit so the title here is forming a flossing habit an exploratory study of the psychological determinants of habit formation clearly an academic title uh, so this is a publication on wiley so what we're looking at here, I'll set it up, and then Jeanette, you can help us with the conclusions. There's an A and a B, and each has three levels, routine, event course level, and event fine level. Okay, so both A and a B have those three levels. In A, the routine is getting ready for bed, so that's, that's for both A and B, that's the routine. Um, the course level for both A and B is have a shower, then dental care. Where they differ is at the event fine level, right, the more specific level. So for A, it's brushing teeth, then Q, then flossing. But for B, it's Q, flossing, brushing teeth. And one important distinction here is, is that in A, everything stems, everything in the event fine level stems from dental care. But in B, the Q 
stems from having a shower and then flossing and brushing your teeth stems from dental care. So Jeanette, maybe you can take it from there and talk about which one of these graphics, right? Whether putting the cue after having a shower or putting a cue in the middle of the, the dental care sequence is more effective in terms of creating a new habit of flossing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly right. They just sort of were, that's based, the basic question they were trying to ask with this experiment was, is it better to put flossing before brushing your teeth or after brushing your teeth if you're trying to make this a new habit for yourself? And the bottom line is that it was much better if they put flossing after, because yes. in that case, you have your brushing, brushing your teeth as the cue, right? Mm. It's something you already do all the time. And so as soon as you're doing that activity, it cues you to take on the next one, to take on that flossing activity. And so if you scroll down a little bit, the table supports that um, data where you can see the before tooth brushing and yes. the after, that's what the TV is, tooth brushing. Um, yes. That the times floss per month is higher when it was done after. And this flossing habit, right, score, which is what they, they use those questions for, yes. um, is, is much higher. Um, so. No, no. So yeah. So just to break down the table a bit more here. So in the table, you have three columns. You have the group, right? Which is, and the two groups are uh, that they're looking at as times floss per month and then flossing habit. Next column is before TB, right? Which is toothbrushing. And then after TB um, and, and for times floss per month, it's 3.5 for the first group. And then after TB, 10.5, right? So if it was after brushing your teeth, if brushing your teeth was the cue, you went from just flossing your teeth three and a half times per month to 10 and a half times, right? Correct. Pretty dramatic increase. Yeah. And the only thing that was changed is where the cue was. Remember the, the mice in the maze? The cue was the click sound. A habit requires a cue. And we're going to talk about something with James called habit stacking, right? So how can you create habits? What are the best cues? They might be other habits. So stay tuned for that. The, the flossing habit as well, if it was before toothbrushing, right, it was a 9.2. And then after toothbrushing, it was a 16.9. So again, you're seeing a dramatic increase in creating a habit of flossing and the actual quantitative data, the number of times you flossed, dramatically increased by having that cue, right, within the routine that it was closest to, right, within a routine that made, made the most sense in terms of the group, right, the, the, the stratagem, I, I guess, right, so yeah. if you make the cue within your dental care routine, because it's flossing and it's involved in dental care, you're much more likely to do it than if the cue is something unrelated, right, having a shower might be related to like your nighttime or morning routine, but it's much further removed than the actual dental portion. So again, where you put your cues really matters and you can get super granular here with the data and that's why we go through this. So the last figure that I wanna show here, this is actually um, from James Clear's blog. Uh, the Power of Tiny Gains is the title here. If you go to jamesclear.com, you can read more about this. You can, you can search on his different blog articles for habits. He talks about them all the time, obviously. The Power of Tiny Gains again, is the title. And, and what it's showing here is two different numbers, two different uh, endpoints, 1% better every day. And then I see some numbers here, Jeanette, 1.01 to the 365th power, right, which equals 37.78. And then 1% worse every day, 0.99 to the 365th power, you're, you're guessing that's every day in a year, uh, equals uh, 0.03. And, and you're seeing a graph too, where it's on the x-axis, you're looking at um, one year, right? So time. And then on the y-axis, you're looking at improvement or decline. We see kind of an exponential line, and then we see a line going down slightly 
great. What does this mean, Jeanette? Talk, talk to us about these numbers. This graph is amazing. I love it. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's basically showing you that small, tiny differences every single day mm. can make a huge difference. So when you have that 1% better every day, you mentioned that it equals 37.78, yes. right? So basically that many times better. That was your improvement when all you did was do one thing like one tiny percent better right. every day. Right. Which is the but whole point you, of what we're talking about, right? Yes, so that's, the one, that's the thing we haven't talked about yet is how to create the habits. And I just want to jump in real quick to say how many of you in the chat box or if you're watching us live, you've tried to make a big change in your life. You said, I need to have a good habit. I need to start working out every day. And you're like, you take on this huge goal. I'm going to go to the gym for an hour every single day. You do it like one or two days, you quit. I'm going to wake up two hours earlier so I have so much time, right? And then you do that for like two days, you quit. New Year's resolutions, right? That's why most people just drop off right away. You take on these huge goals, these huge changes, and it's too much. And so what James is showing here is that if you just start really small, and this takes us all the way full circle to James's book, Atomic Habit, right? These very, very microscopically small habits, they build up and add up over time. And, and so you're saying, Jeanette, that the, the results can be dramatic, even if it's just a 1% every day. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Even if it's something so tiny that it's really difficult to see that change every day. And mm -hmm. I think that also goes back to the importance of creating that habit so that, that you're not relying on this like instant gratification to keep doing it. You've developed a habit so that you keep doing this tiny thing every single day and then get the improvement. Right. And you start to feel, as it said earlier, weird if you don't do it. You start to feel uncomfortable. You actually feel worse not doing it than doing it. And at the same time, you're conserving mental energy, everything we talked about. So uh, a longer show me the data section today, but I think it was really important to set this up because a lot of people talk about habits at more of a, a kind of a superficial, fluffy level. We wanted to drill down, look at the data, not just the qualitative, but the quantitative and, and set up uh, our interview with James here. So thank you, Jeanette, for your time. Um, great, great section on why habits are important. We linked up a variety of things that matter in habits that we're going to talk to, to James about. Uh, everything from cues, intention, uh, how, how small to start with your habits, and how all of this can come together to increase your performance while conserving your mental energy. So I'm going to bring on James Clear now in one second after I go through his bio. Very excited to have on James. Very lucky to have him on, on with us. I'm going to show very quickly his uh, blog, his website one more time, jamesclear.com. I know it was at one point the fastest growing blog of all time. Uh, I saw James speak at an event called the Mastermind Talks a, a couple of years ago and uh, just great insights on what it took to, to write something that was clear that added a lot of value. And um, it was obviously a, a, a small habit that he turned into something very, very big. Uh, James is the author of Atomic Habits and a writer focused on habits, decision-making and continuous improvement. His book is here. I've showed it a couple of times. You can see it kind of glistening in the sun there. Great cover. Uh, Atomic Habits is the book. You can check it out. You can find it on Amazon or on his website. I'll show it over here too, YouTube, Atomic Habits. Great book. We're going to dig into it here shortly. James's work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur Time, and CBS this morning. Again, his website, James Clear, receives millions, millions with an M, of visitors each month and hundreds of thousands of people subscribe to his popular email newsletter. I highly recommend you go to his website right now and get on his newsletter. He is a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies and his work is used by teams in the NFL, 
NBA, MLB. So no matter what kind of sport you like, he is involved there. Uh, through his online course, The Habits Academy, which I highly recommend too, I think there's no better way to scale yourself in business or with your goals than habits. Check out James's Habits Academy. Uh, he has taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers through his academy. Um, the, the academy, the Habits Academy, is the premier training platform for individuals and organizations that are interested in, guess what? building habits in life and work. So welcome, James. It's great to have you on with us. Thanks for being here. Hey, you bet, man. It's great to talk to you, Isaiah. Great to see you. Look at, and you can, I really like your background with the books there, color coordinated. Yeah, thank Perfect. you. A little insight into my personality. Maybe. <laughs> that was a small habit that, that slowly took over your bookcase, I'm sure. So great to have you on. And, you know, I really appreciate the book and everything that you've done on habits. I really, I, I like how you drill down. Like I said, I read a lot of book on habits, a lot of books on habits that just say, Habits are important, and there's a, there's a cue and a reward, and that's kind of where it ends off. What I really liked about your book is you offered something that I haven't seen anywhere else, and it's kind of what I wanted to start with, if it's okay. Chapter 18, you talk about genes and how personality influence habits. Mm. This is something you know we talked about a little bit in our private group before, and everybody was really excited about hearing. So can you tell us how genes and how personality affect a person's ability to create good habits? Yeah, sure. So I think this is an interesting topic and I agree. I haven't seen anybody discuss it before or dive into it. So a lot of the time when it comes to self-improvement or thinking about advancing your skills in some particular area, people don't like to talk about genes because they get into this feeling of biological determinism or, oh, if my genes are fixed and I can't do anything about it, then why even bother basically? Yes. Um, but of course, that's not actually what genes mean or what the... Um, the outcome is that we should infer from them. So the way that I would describe it is genes, the thing that makes genes really useful in a particular context, the fact that they are fixed is also what makes them a hindrance in other contexts. So mm -hmm. the, the utility or the usefulness of a gene or a set of genes is determined by the environment that you are in. So if you're seven feet tall, that's a very useful set of genes if you wanna play basketball but it's a great hindrance if you want to be a really good gymnast. Um, yes. And so what's interesting is, you know, those examples, like a physical example is quite clear, but genes also influence all of our psychological traits and our personality. And so there's a, there's like a connection there that we can make between um, our mental characteristics and our genes. And then also what environments we place ourselves in so that we're more primed for success, like a seven footer on a basketball court rather than uh, on a balance beam. So one way to think about this, you know, there are a variety of personality measures and personality tests to the best of my knowledge. And I am not a personality psychologist, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, the most robust test of personality traits is the big five. And the big five maps personality onto five different spectrums. Uh, the most common one that people have heard about is introversion and extroversion on two different ends of the spectrum. But there are other ones like conscientiousness or agreeableness or open to openness to experience. And um, there have been a variety of studies that have linked each of these five traits to the genetic code, to DNA in some way. There's some biological underpinning for these personality aspects. And that is the technical scientific definition of personality is that it's the quality or set of characteristics that go with you from situation to situation, right? They're mm. um, robust and, uh, and stable across environments. If you change based on the environment, well then by definition, that must be an environmental influence and not a personality one. Yes. So 
uh, one of my favorite studies on this showed that uh, it took a set of babies in the nursing ward and they played a harsh noise on one side of the nursing ward and uh, some of the babies turned toward the noise and some of them turned away. And when they tracked these children, when they grew up throughout their life, they found that the ones who turned toward the noise were more likely to grow up to be extroverts and the ones that turned away from the noise wow. were more likely to grow up to be introverts. Now, of course, each of these studies does not tell the full story, but the point here is that there is some kind of biological basis for some aspect of our personality and we're gaining more and more insight into that as time goes on. Um, people who are high in agreeableness, for example, tend to have higher levels of uh, natural levels of oxytocin. So now what's the punchline here? How does this come back to habits? Yes. So for, for your, your particular set of genes, for your particular personality, there may be certain habits that are easier for you to do based on what your natural skill set is. And there also may be some strategies that make more sense for you based on where your strengths and weaknesses lie. So for example, if you are high in agreeableness, then maybe things like getting people together for a social night out or writing thank you notes, things that are considered warm and considerate and kind, those habits might come more naturally to you than they would to someone else who is low in agreeableness. Mm. Um, similarly, someone who is high in conscientiousness is someone who's very neat and orderly and organized. So if you're low in conscientiousness, then it might be more important from a strategy standpoint for you to say prime your environment so that you have exposure to good cues and you leave it less likely for you to just remember to do the right thing because you're not that kind of person. You're not an orderly organized person who is gonna remember it or have a to-do list for it. So the more your environment is primed for that, the better you position yourself to follow through with those habits. And I think there's a lot for us to learn here. Uh, there's yeah. still a lot to, to cover when it comes to personality characteristics and genes, but. I, I don't think that um, the punchline for this chapter of the book is that genes do not eliminate the need for strategy. They inform it. They don't eliminate the need to work hard. They just tell you where to work hard. By better understanding your genes and your set of characteristics, you can better design a strategy for building habits that work for your life and your particular personality. Just very well said. And, and I just want to recap again, for those of you that haven't checked out the five big personality traits, check it out. The data is very strong on it, very consistent, studied for years and years. Fascinating. The first time when I was in grad school and I first looked it up, I wasn't a behavioral psychologist, but I just kept reading all these articles. It's great, great stuff. Um, and let me make this practical for those of you who are listening, mostly PhDs, right? You're trying to make that next step in your career. Most of you are a little bit introverted. Right. So how can we apply that to what James just said? You're a little bit introverted. So you need to take that into account before you start setting up habits. If you know you're introverted, if you know you're less likely to go to a networking event, you're less likely to put yourself out there. You're less likely to, to mingle. Um, you need to set up better cues. Like James just said, you need to take that into account when you're trying to find a habit that'll work for you. You need to start maybe, and we'll get to this later, maybe even smaller when it comes to networking, instead of saying, I'm going to reach out to 10 people today, Try just one, right? Try to reach out to one person. Try to get some accountability, some support, et cetera. And I think this was a great place to start because most of us, again, especially as PhDs, we want to jump into the weeds right away and say, okay, I'm going to set up my habits and my cues. You need to start asking yourself first, what are you more inclined to do? Like what, mm -hmm. what are some of your personality traits? What has your past history shown, right? And you, may, you don't have to go to 23andMe or anything and get your genetic code mapped out, but you can just look at the trends in your life and what's been difficult, what hasn't been, Ask those questions first, and then you can jump to creating good habits. So, James, if we move forward from here and we realize, okay, I am a little bit more introverted. I have a tough time reaching out. I have a tough time networking, public speaking, et cetera. I want to create some 
better habits in this way. What are so, where's, where do we start? Do we start with cues? Do we just jump in? Do we start big, small? Do we start stacking right away? What is stacking? Where would yeah. we go next? Yeah, great question. So uh, there are a variety of things that you can do. In the book, I lay out this kind of like framework that I call the four laws of behavior change. And one way to think about it is that they're kind of like four tools in a toolbox and you can take out which tool you need based on the circumstance you're facing, or you can, you know, like four different levers. And, you know, sometimes the levers are in the right positions and sometimes they're in the wrong positions. So I mentioned that here uh, just as a, a broad context because I'm going to give some specific examples right now, but I don't want that to sound like this is the one thing everyone should do. It'll, yes. it'll differ based on your circumstance and the book kind of covers that like nuance a little bit better than I can in the next you know, five minutes or so. But, um, but the place that I would typically recommend that people start is by making it as easy as possible. Um, so I recommend something I call the two minute rule. And the basic idea is you take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to just the first two minutes. So, you know, people have heard things like uh, take baby steps or take small steps before, right? Like everybody's heard that, yes. but the, it's kind of like telling people like, just do it. I mean, that, technically it's correct, but uh, from a practical standpoint, it's not very useful. Hmm. And I think the two minute rule is a much more practical application of that. So you take whatever habit you're trying to build, like um, I want to read 30 books in the next year or uh, I want to do 20 minutes of yoga three days a week or something like that. And you scale it down to just the first two minutes. So read 30 books becomes read one page or mm -hmm. do 20 minutes of yoga becomes take out my yoga mat. And the point of that is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. Whenever we're looking to change a habit, we often start by optimizing for the finish line. We think about, all right, I want to uh, you know, I want to earn six figures next year, or I want to read 30 books, or I want to lose 60 pounds in the next six months. Like we're, we're very outcome focused, hmm. but instead I think we should optimize for the starting line instead of the finish line, because if you can do that and you can master the art of showing up every day, then you actually have a chance to optimize and improve something. But hmm. people are so often caught up in the outcome that they want that they don't figure out how to standardize the process first. Um, one story just to kind of encapsulate this idea and give you an example of it. I have a reader who he ended up losing over a hundred pounds. And one of the ways that he did it was that he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would drive to the gym, show up, do like half an exercise. It would get five minutes in and then he would leave. And he did this for like six weeks. And it sounds silly to most people because they're like, you know, that's not going to do anything. But the point is he was mastering the art of showing up. And once he became the type of person who went to the gym every day, then he had a ton of options. Then he could think about what exercise should I do? Or what should I get a personal trainer? How long should my workout actually be? But so many people don't become that type of person first. And then they're, they're just left chasing this goal without actually having the foundation to optimize or improve anything. So I think if you're going to start somewhere, start with that. Become the person that shows up. And then you can worry about optimizing. Yeah, and I love that. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, James says two minutes. There's a lot of data that shows that you can do almost anything in two minutes before really that dread starts sitting in, et cetera. Like when it's only a two-minute task, uh, task, you can get it done. And that's really what, it, like, if you really have to make it that small. You know, the, the floss, since we did some flossing examples before, an example I've heard is floss one tooth, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can work up. For me, I always wanted to add though, is like um, a lot of the things that a lot of the work that people like, you know, everybody who's on this call, right, doing a lot of deep knowledge work, effortful thinking. Uh, for me, you know, I'm an author. People, we often use the phrase um, 
habit to mean things that don't aren't technically a habit, right? You just showed all this data about habits are automaticity. Yeah. Habits can be performed more or less without thinking. You're not going to be doing an informational interview for a job and like be totally on autopilot and not yeah. be thinking, or you're not going to be writing a book chapter and not yes. thinking about the words you're putting down. Like writing is about as effortful as it gets. Hmm. And so for a lot of this, these kind of tasks that we want to do on a more consistent basis, the thing to habitualize is not the action that you're, you're thinking about. The thing to habitualize is the beginning of it. If you can kind of think about your habits as like a gateway or like the entrance ramp to a highway. And if you can make the first two minutes automatic, if you can make that ritual that initiates the bigger thing, uh, whether it's doing job searching or practicing informational interviews or writing a chapter of your book, just make the ritual at the very beginning automatic, get that nailed. And then you're actually there and you can show up and do the effortful work. And so I think maybe it's a little bit of, technically you want to make a habit out of practicing interviews, but in a, in a, um, in the more true sense, you're looking to make a habit of getting started on that and then letting the effortful work follow. Yeah, I'm really glad you took it there. Uh, actually, that's an important point because we, we hear a lot about morning routines, et cetera. But in a morning routine, people will have, like you just said, writing for two hours or networking or whatever. This work that requires the part of your brain that makes it not technically a habit. And so right. what you're saying is get the automate everything else so that you have as much mental energy as possible for those very conscious moments that you need to do difficult things. That's what you're essentially saying. Well, so I'll just give you an example from my own life. There's, I like to refer to these as decisive moments. And the basic idea is you want to automate the decisive moment that kind of determines the next chunk of time. So depending on what study you look at, habits account for about 40 to 50% of our behaviors on any given day. And that's like, that's already a big chunk, right? Like things, you know, all the things you don't think about doing, brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, unplugging the toaster after each use. Like, you know, we're just, we're doing a ton of things automatically. But they actually, the true influence of your habits is even greater than that because you take an action and then it often determines what you do with the next chunk of time. So for me, there's a moment, a decisive moment each morning where I walk down and I get to my computer and either I start writing the next article that I'm going to work on, or I go to ESPN and I check the sports news for like the next 45 minutes. And it's really about what happens in that first minute on the computer that yeah. determines what the next 45 minutes are going to be. And so what I'm saying is scale your habits down to just the first two minutes. What is that decisive moment that determines what you do with that next chunk of time and mm. pour all of your energy into mastering that. And it, what's kind of nice is you realize there really isn't that much that you have to automate. There isn't that much that you have to nail. If I can just nail the first two minutes when I'm at my computer and I'm starting to work on the article already, well then, then it's easy after that. The, the key is do I not slide into ESPN and lose an hour? That's fantastic. You know, and again, for PhDs who have given, you know, uh, a million different PowerPoint presentations, you, you often hear just like literally memorize or habitualize the, the first couple of slides and the maybe even the transition points between slides. And if you do that, that's 90% of the work because mm -hmm. you get on the slide and everything's fine. It's just those transition points where you can get stuck or go blank, et cetera. And so that's what, what James is talking about is really identify the critical points, the decision points. I like that, the, uh, the decisive yeah. points. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. I want to drill down a bit more and get granular here. Okay, so you, you talk a lot about habit stacking in your book. Yeah. You talk about these, the, the components of a habit. So can you take us through what the components of a habit are and then how to use those components to stack habits? 
Okay, so yeah, in early in this call, you laid out habits as like this kind of three-step thing that's in Power of Habit and originally came from like B.F. Skinner in the 1930s where he's kind of talking about stimulus, response, reward, or cue, routine, reward, this, you know, um, these yes. behavioral psychology patterns. And, um, and behavioral psychologists found that that three-step framework was very useful for, uh, for driving behavior. But then around the 1950s, there was this cognitive psychology wave where they discovered, oh, hey, our moods and emotions and thoughts and feelings also impact our behavior. And that's not accounted for just with like a cue and a reward. So what's going on here? Hmm. And the four-step model that I lay out in my book um, tries to integrate these two approaches where it accounts for both the cues and the rewards and the consequences of daily life and how those influence our habits and how our internal moods and emotions and thoughts influence them. And uh, to tie this back together to what you all just shared a few minutes ago, it's really thinking about how, remember we saw that graph about intention. And mm -hmm. if you had low intention, it didn't really matter if the cue was there, you weren't gonna perform the habit. Right. So that is effectively what I've added, this, a stage that I've integrated into the model. So my model starts with a cue. There's some kind of cue that captures your attention. Usually it's visual, humans are very visual creatures, but it doesn't have to be, it could be any of those senses. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say for example, that you walk into a room and you see a plate of cookies on the counter. So that's a visual cue. The next stage, and this is the stage that I added uh, to my model, is what I would call craving, but really it's about the prediction that your brain makes. It's about the interpretation that you have regarding that cue. And we could say that this is kind of similar to that intention graph. So if you see a cue, like you see cookies, and you are high intention, you have a high craving, you say, oh, these are gonna be tasty, you interpret them as, as being a positive thing, the perceived value is high. That craving leads to the third stage, which is the response or the, the actual routine. So you pick up the cookie and you eat it. Yes. And then finally, there's a reward. So the cookie is sugary, it's tasty, you enjoy it and so on. And this, these four stages kind of create a feedback loop. And as you repeat them more and more, the, it gets tightened and pretty soon you can do all four stages on autopilot. So like, um, say you walk into a room and it's dark, cue, room is dark, craving, I wanna be able to see or I wanna reduce the uncertainty of a dark room response, I flip on the light switch, reward, the room is lit up. And those four stages all happen in like 30 milliseconds, right? I mean, right. It's just, your brain is endlessly going through this loop. But the reason that I added that second stage, and the reason that I think it's crucial is you can just as easily imagine a situation where you respond to the same cue that you had previously responded to in one way, but in a different way. So let's say that um, you just finished eating dinner in the other room, and you're full, you're stuffed and you walk in and you see that same plate of cookies. Same visual cue, but suddenly you don't eat one. You're like, oh no, I don't wanna eat anything else. I'm stuffed, I'm full. Mm. So your interpretation, your craving is different. Uh, your intention is now low rather than mm. being high intention. Mm. And that's represented by the second stage in my model. So, so, so your environment affects this or are there, are there things you can do to affect your intention? I think the something? way to describe it is your current state influences mm. it. So some, you know, we are not always in the same state throughout the day. Sometimes we're high energy, sometimes we're low energy. Sometimes we're, our stomachs are full, sometimes our stomachs are empty. Um, sometimes certain habits seem attractive to us based on the people that we're around because everybody else is doing them. And sometimes they seem unattractive. Hmm. So this is, uh, we're getting off a little bit on a tangent here, but it's an important sure. one. Yeah. This is why social influences are so strong on habits. You know, like society leans heavily on us all. Think about habits like, you step onto an elevator and you turn around to face the front, or you go to a job interview and you wear a suit and a tie or a dress or something nice. There's no reason it has to be that way, right? You could face the back of the elevator. You could wear a bathing suit to a job interview, 
but we don't because it violates the shared expectation of the group that we're in. And so your intention, so to speak, is different based on the people that you're around. Like, oh, I'm at a job interview. They expect me to be in a suit. And so you act differently because of that. Uh, Or that behavior seems more appealing because of that situation. So it's both. Both your current state and your environment can influence how you are interpreting cues and how you respond. So just to use that example, because I want to close the loop here. So would the the solution be to remove the cookies from all situations except for after you eat or are there other solutions to prevent yourself from eating? Yeah. So I cover this in more detail in the book, but the idea is that there are a variety of things you can do and you can kind of intervene at each of the four stages. So, you know, I mentioned cue, craving, response, reward, and those four laws of behavior change that are in the book, you can have like a set of rules for each one. So for the cue, you want to make it obvious. You want to be exposed to the cues of your good habits. For the craving, you want to make it attractive. You want to be in situations or in tribes that make those habits attractive. Mm. Um, For the response, you want to make it easy. So the more convenient a habit is, the easier it is to do, the more likely you are to follow through. And then for the reward, you want the ending of the habit to be satisfying. Because the more that it's satisfying, the more you have this like positive emotional signal where you're like, hey, this felt good. I should do this again. And so those four uh, laws, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying help you build a good habit. And if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those four. So you make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. Um, So, you know, take the habit of watching television, for example. A lot of people feel like they watch too much TV or procrastinate watching Netflix or whatever. If you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? It's designed to get you to watch television. So there are a variety of things you could do there to reduce exposure to that cue. So remember, you want to invert the first law, so make it invisible. So you could take the remote and put it inside a a drawer or uh, in a a coffee table. Um, You could take your television and put it in a wall unit or a cabinet so that it's behind doors and you're less Mm. likely to see it. But then you could also employ an inversion of the third law of behavior change. So rather than making it easy to watch TV, you could make it difficult. So you could like... um, you could take out the batteries from the remote control so that it takes an extra five or 10 seconds to turn it on. And then maybe that's enough time for you to be like, do I really want to do this? Or am I just kind of like doing it on autopilot? Yeah. Or you could unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So like you're not allowed to just turn Netflix on and find something. Yeah. Um, If you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall, put it in the closet and only take it out if you (laughs) wanted to watch something enough to set it up again. But the point here is that you want to reduce exposure to the cues of your bad habits. You know, so if you want to stop spending money on technology products, well, don't follow all the latest tech review blogs. You know, you're being like prompted to do that all the time. If you want to lose weight, don't follow food bloggers on Instagram. Um, you're, you know, you're constantly having to overcome these stimuli. And you want to increase exposure to the cues of your good habits. And then for friction, you want to increase the friction associated with your bad habits. You want more steps between you and turning on the TV or more steps between you and grabbing the unhealthy food um, or grabbing your phone, for example, uh, and fewer steps between you and the good behaviors. So for myself, you know, I have my phone. uh, I try to keep it into in another room before lunch each day so that I get a block of like three or four hours where I can work without it being next to me. And um, what's fascinating to me about that is that if the phone is right next to me, I'm like everybody else, I'll check it every three minutes. But if it's 
outside the room. It's only like 45 seconds away, but I'll never go get it. And you often find that bad habits will fade away like that if you're kind of in an environment that primes you in the right way. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, I like, again, that you're starting small. Take the batteries out of the remote, do this. Let me make it practical for all of you watching. You want to get into an industry job. Maybe when you open your computer, you set your homepage to uh, job listings or you set your homepage to, you know, the private group so that you can see what people, what, what jobs are trending, et cetera. So right away, that very visual cue is there. You surround yourself with the right people, et cetera. A lot of you, if you're in the association, right, you're around other people who want to get jobs. That will satisfy that craving that, that James was talking about. Right? You make the routines as easy as possible. Make it easy for you to find some time to uh, you know, reach out to people on LinkedIn. Right? Maybe LinkedIn is one of the things that pops up on, on your homepage every time you open your computer. And then I think the reward section is really important because our reward feedback loop is powerful. And yeah. so you have to consciously identify what the reward is. Like if you go to a networking, and we talk about this a lot for networking events. Most of you hate networking events. You set one up, you're gonna to go to for your job search. By the end of the day, you've talked yourself out of it. You're like, I get too much work in the lab and you don't end up showing up. We talk about that all the time. But if you chunk it down and say, okay, you don't have to go to this networking event for the full three hours that it's there, right? Go for 15 minutes, connect with three people and leave, right? Go for two minutes, like James said. It's you're, you're leveraging all of the strategies we're talking about today. James, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Just very quickly, you've really built out the structure of a habit. How can I now stack another habit on top of that habit and start to scale? Yeah, so habit stacking is this idea that you can use your current habits to initiate a new habit. So you want to stack the new behavior that you want to perform on top of an old one. So for example, after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Or if you want to... Uh, build the habit of reading more. You could say, okay, my normal morning routine is I wake up, I turn off my alarm, I make the bed, and then I take a shower. And so you could say, okay, now my new habit stack is I turn off the alarm, I make my bed, I set a book on my pillow, and then I take a shower. So that when you get in bed at night, and uh, there's a book waiting for you to read. But the idea here is that you want to you wanna stack that new behavior on top of an old one. And you brought up a point earlier uh, when you were talking about some of the studies, which is that habits that are more relevant to each other tend to be better cues. So like the example of having flossing after toothbrushing instead of after a shower, um, the more relevant or the more appropriate the time is that you ask yourself to do it, the more likely you are to, to follow through. And I'll, I'll just say as a, um, as a general trend, it's easier to habit stack by using a cue that's after something than it is before. So you can think about the flossing example as one option is before I brush my teeth, I will floss. And the other option is after I brush my teeth, I will floss. Oh. Before is asking yourself to remember to do it. You know, it's like, oh shoot, I brushed my teeth, but I was supposed to floss before that or whatever. Um, it's kind of like saying, before I close the door on my car, I will check to make sure I have my keys on me. Well, it's a good habit, but like a lot of the time you just close the car door and you don't even, and then you realize, oh, I locked my keys in the car. Um, so if you yes. do it after you have something like physical or tangible to tie the habit to, mm. and the good news is you can almost always, if you break down each process in a more granular fashion, you can almost always find an after cue that you can use. So for example, you might say something like, well, before I go for a run, I should text a family or friend where I'm going and how long I'll be gone. Mm. But instead of trying to remember to do it before, you just break down that sequence and you say, okay, after I tie my running shoes, I will text a family and friend where I'm going and how long I'll be gone. Um, and anything, anything tangible, a tangible like after cue tends to work better. 
Fantastic. So uh, I think this is a, a, a great thing for all of you to really break down the habits, right? Remember that the, the new stuff that James has talked about, you know, taking your personality into account, even your genes, the intention, the cravings, really something different that you're not going to hear anywhere else that you heard from James. And I, I highly recommend you dig into it in his book. I'm going to show it one more time here. Atomic Habits. I'll show it at the end of the show too. We'll put a link in to the book in the chat box on all of our different social media sites as we continue to stream here. Go to jamesclear.com. You can find out more about his book there. You can read ad nauseum about habits. Incredible, incredible information. As you just saw, he is masterful at understanding the studies, breaking it down and making it actionable. So James, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much for having me. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to CheekyScientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.